Good morning. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Some verses are kind of like launching pads. And 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 is one of those verses. Paul says in that verse that you are to test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself to see if Jesus is really in you. And we have been spending the last several weeks trying to do that. We looked at the subjective evidence for your salvation. Romans chapter 8 and verse 16 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. There is a subjective element to this test, and that is that the Spirit of God speaks to your spirit. I can't see that. Only you know that. And how the Spirit bears witness to you that you're a child of God. But there's also an objective angle to it as well. In 1 John 3.10, John says, the children of God are obvious. You can recognize a child of God. It's obvious. That's objective Evidence, and I suggested three objective marks of a genuine Christian. And those three marks are a repentant spirit, a surrendered will, and a fruitful life. Last week we started talking about a surrendered will, and we're going to continue that this morning in Luke chapter 14. Because in Luke chapter 14, if you notice verse 25, it says, Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, Jesus is speaking to large crowds, huge multitudes. And he says in verses 28 to 32 that we read last time, you'd better count the cost. And what is the cost? Well, in this context, Jesus says three things and they are not optional. Because he tells us in verse 26, if you don't do this, you can't be my disciple. Verse 27, if you don't do this, you cannot be my disciple. And in verse 33, if you don't do this, you cannot be my disciple. This is how Jesus would give an invitation. Jesus would say, don't come to me until you count the cost. And it's going to cost you a lot. Because you're going to have to surrender several areas of your life And the areas he mentions here are your relationships, your responsibilities, and your resources. First of all, your relationships. Look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I don't know if that verse bothers you, but it certainly bothers me. Jesus says, if you want to come to me, you've got to hate your father. You've got to hate your mother. You've got to hate your wife. You've got to hate your kids. You've got to hate even your own life. Now the problem word there is hate. 
You say, how can Jesus tell us to despise our family when in other places in Scripture we're told to love our wife, to love our kids, to honor our parents? One of the beautiful things about the gospel is there are four of them. And when you read accounts in each gospel, sometimes the accounts are a little different. And they're a little different, not because they wrote them down different, but because Jesus often said the same thing over and over again. Which is great for a preacher, because when you tell me I've said it before, I say, Jesus did that too. He repeated himself. And sometimes he told it a little different than he did on another occasion. The disciples took it down, and it's a little different. In the parallel account, you don't have to look it up, but you might want to mark it. In Matthew 10, 35... Jesus says, I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. In fact, he said that your enemies may end up being the members of your family. And then he says this, he who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. One account, Jesus says you have to hate them. In the other account, Jesus says you have to love me more than them. So what's Jesus saying? When it comes to relationships, you have to love me more. In fact, you have to love me so much more that in contrast, your other relationships look like hate. Jesus is saying when it comes to relationships, there is one relationship to which you must have ultimate allegiance. And it's not your spouse. It's not your children. It's not your kids. It's not your friends. There is one relationship that you must be absolutely committed to, and it must have absolute preeminence in your life, and that is your relationship to Jesus Christ. He's saying you have to value me more than you value your spouse. You have to value me more than you value your kids. You have to value me more than you value your parents. Pretty high cost. Jesus is talking to this huge crowd. I'm sure he is filtering out some of the spectators at this point in time. You see, what he wants to be in your life is so supreme that if you ever have to choose between Jesus and the greatest love in your human life, you choose Jesus. Jesus demonstrated this in his own life. When he was 12, his parents brought him to Jerusalem, you remember? And he was there at the feast in Jerusalem, and his parents started home, and Jesus was supposed to be with them, but he wasn't with them. Instead, he was in the temple having a Q&A with the PhDs of that day and stymieing these guys. And his parents realized he was not with them on the trip back to Nazareth, so they came back to the temple and they found him And his mother said to him, why have you treated us this way? You moms ever say that? Why have you treated us this way? In other words, 
if you really loved us, you wouldn't do this. And Jesus said, did you not know that I must be about my Father's business? What's that mean? I have a higher allegiance. You see, in the decisions of life, when your mother says, go here, and God says, go there, you have to say, sorry, Mom. When your husband says, do this, and God says, do that, you have to say, sorry, honey. You see, Jesus is saying there is no authority in your life that supersedes the authority of Jesus Christ. And if you have somebody in your life who can talk you out of obeying Jesus, then Jesus says, you can't be my disciple. You say, well, I'd like to surrender all to Jesus, but what will my friends think? They'll think I'm weird. Jesus says, fine. You can't come to me. I'd love to come to Jesus, but what will my spouse think? It'll, it'll change our whole house. Jesus says, fine. Count the cost. Because when it comes to relationships, I have to be number one. And God will not be number two to anyone. You say, well, that doesn't seem right. Really? Try it in your marriage. Try saying to your wife, I love you, but I'd like you to be number two to this other woman. That probably won't fly. And it won't fly because she wants to be the only one. Is she wrong to be jealous? Is she wrong to want to be the first priority in your life? No. See, if another woman says go left and your wife says go right, you better go right. See, that's the nature of commitment. That's the nature of the commitment we make in the highest human relationship. And God is simply saying, you're to make that same commitment to me. Jesus is the groom. We are the bride. We make that same kind of commitment in our relationship to Jesus Christ. And if you've grown up in a home where your parents or your family are not believers yet, you may have experienced some of this. Sometimes your family is going to think you don't love them when you obey Jesus. Sometimes they're going to think you're despising them by making choices in following Jesus. And sometimes they'll even say to you, trying to use some leverage, if you love me, you'd do this. And meanwhile, Jesus is saying, if you love me, you'll do that. And the question is, who do you love? Up until I was 14, my parents were immigrants. And they became U.S. citizens when I was 14. It was great at school because my teacher didn't believe my little piece of paper that said, please excuse Danny on Thursday because his parents are becoming U.S. citizens. And my teacher said, I've heard everything. But you know, one of the things they had to do to become a citizen of the United States 
was they had to denounce their citizenship in Canada. They had to let go of their citizenship in Canada in order to make a commitment to the United States of America. That's the Pledge of Allegiance that we make because if a war ever broke out with Canada, they could be killing somebody that they grew up with. When a young man is called off to war, he may go to Afghanistan, he may go to Iraq, he says goodbye to his parents, to his kids and his wife, and he leaves. You may look at that and say, well, doesn't he love his wife? Doesn't he love his parents? Doesn't he love his kids? Yes. But see, he has a higher calling. And Jesus Christ is saying, you have to make a pledge of allegiance to me. And if you're not willing to do that, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. That's pretty strong language. He doesn't say, you might not, or you should not, or it'll be really difficult, or extremely hard. He says, you cannot do it. That's an absolute no. So guys, let me suggest something to you. Some night this week, set up a nice candlelight dinner, get some roses, some nice music, at just the perfect romantic moment, turn to your wife and say, honey, you will never be number one in my life. Because Jesus Christ holds that place. You will always be number two to him. Now, you know what the paradox is of that? When you let Jesus Christ be number one in your life, your family doesn't lose. Your family wins. Because when Jesus Christ is number one in your life, he fills your life with his love, and you have the capacity to love your family in greater ways than you ever did before, or you ever will if you try to make him second or third or fourth. So the fir- first area of your life that has to be surrendered to the authority of Christ is your relationships. Jesus must be the number one love of your life. And before we go on, I want you to notice a little phrase in that verse that you might overlook if you're not careful. And that is the little phrase, and even his own life. Not only must our relationships with others be relinquished, but we have to relinquish our relationship with ourself. And for some of us, that's the biggest obstacle of all. Some of us have a hot love affair with ourselves going on. So Jesus says, not only do relationships with others have to be relinquished to make me first but your relationship with you. We often call, we talk about number one, and who are we talking about? We're talking about ourselves. Jesus says you have to relinquish that love of yourself because I have to be priority number one 
in your life. That's why Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. Now, I said last week that a lot of preachers put their finger in the air and see where the wind of popular opinion is blowing, and then they change their message. This is one of the areas you hear that in. You'll hear a lot of people today telling you that you need to love yourself, that you need to assert yourself, that you need to believe in yourself. What does Jesus say? Jesus says you need to deny yourself. You need to lose yourself. And in fact, in this verse, what does he say? You need to hate yourself in relationship to the place Jesus should have in your life. Our relationships take the form of a triangle. And all our human relationships are on that horizontal plane. And there is only one person at the top of that triangle. And that person must be Jesus Christ. And so the first area you surrender to him is your relationships. Second area you surrender to him is your responsibilities. In verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now the Roman government was committed to capital punishment. And their form of execution was crucifixion. They hung a person on a cross until he died. And that was the worst form of death imaginable. In fact, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 21-23, it says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The Romans realized how awful it was, so they did not allow their own citizens to die in this fashion. It was too humiliating. It was the lowliest form of death you could have. And so when Jesus says this statement to this huge crowd, you've got to carry your cross, it caused them to cringe. Now, the cross has lost most of its horror for us today. When I mention the word cross, you think of jewelry. Got a little piece of jewelry that I wear. It's, it's on church steeples. It's this ornate thing. We, we don't think of it as a horrible thing. So to think of it properly, it would be as if Jesus said to you today, unless you stand in front of the firing squad, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you pick up your electric chair and come after me, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you put the hangman's noose around your neck and come after me, you cannot be my disciple. Now, not only was the criminal crucified on the cross, but in that day, they were made to carry their own cross. And they typically went through the major street of the city carrying their cross as a display of their own crime to further humiliate them. So when you saw someone uh, walking down the street carrying a cross, you knew that that person was on a one-way journey. 
You knew that even though that person may be going down Main Street, for them, this is a dead-end street, literally. So they carried their cross to the place of crucifixion, and then they were crucified. And so when Jesus says, you can't be my disciple unless you carry your cross, the message was clear. He was saying to this large group of people, this is not a joy ride. He was saying to this huge multitude, if you're just here for the goodies, to get healed, to get some free food, to hear a feel-good message, then you might as well go home now. Because your responsibility, if you're going to follow me, is to carry your cross. Your responsibility, if you're going to follow me, is to die to yourself. It's to lay down your life. It's to commit everything to me, including your last breath. As Jesus says in Luke 9, 24, you must lose your life for my sake. That's what it costs to follow Jesus. Now, if you follow Jesus, you will lose your life spiritually and practically in the sense of a surrendered will to him. And you may lose it physically and actually. Because the cross always brought shame, suffering, ridicule, persecution, and death. And when you pick up your cross, you may experience one or all of those. The thing about picking up your cross, you never know what it's going to bring you. And that's why Jesus says you're to pick up, not his cross. He took care of his cross. You don't have any part in that. He says you're to pick up your cross. So you have a personal cross. You don't know all that that's going to entail, but you pick it up and you follow him. Remember in John 21, after Jesus rose from the dead, Peter had denied that he knew Jesus three times, and he came to Peter lovingly and said, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Gave him three chances to tell him that he loved him to compensate for the denials that he made. And then he said to Peter, I'm going to tell you how you're going to die. Now, he doesn't do this very often, and I don't think you would want it if you could get it. But he said to Peter, I'm going to tell you how you're going to die. People are going to stretch out your hands like you don't want them to stretch out your hands, and you're going to die that way. In other words, you're going to be crucified. How would you like to know that? You're going to be crucified, and then he says to Peter, now follow me. That's a high cost. What did Peter do? As only Peter can do, he turned and looked at John and said, well, what about him? Jesus says, you're going to die on a cross, come follow me. Peter says, what about John? And Jesus said, to paraphrase, it's none of your business. You follow me. What happened to John? John lived to be an old man. He he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos when he was very old. 
As far as we know, he did not die on a cross. So Jesus says you've got to carry your cross. It may lead to actual crucifixion for you. It may be that you grow old and just experience the persecution that comes with that. But either way, you have to be willing to lay down your life. You have to say to Jesus, I am going all the way to death. I am going to carry my cross. Death to self. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm going to die to me. And you know what he says in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23? He says, this is something you are to do daily. You say, well, I was good and dead about a year ago. And now I seem to be very much alive, okay? Jesus says you've got to die to yourself daily. Pick up your cross every day. Death to self. And follow Jesus. And just as we said that a repentant spirit is not a one-time thing, if you have a repentant spirit, it's going to show up in daily confession and brokenness before God. Same is true of carrying your cross. You pick it up at salvation, and Jesus says you need to continue to pick it up every day as you make that statement that I am dead to self and alive to God. And then the third area that you're to surrender to Jesus is your resources. Notice verse 33. So then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. I'm going to pause now and we're going to take an offering. So that's a tough verse. Give up all your possessions. That's a tough verse because I have a house. I have a car. I have some nice clothes. Thank you. What is Jesus talking about here when he says you've got to give up all your possessions? Well, he's saying just as you have to lay down your life and you don't know exactly what that's going to entail, you have to lay down all your possessions. Jesus may or may not take them all, but you have to lay them all down. You see, the message of giving in the New Testament is not that you give 10%. It's not that you give 20%. It's not that you give 30%. You can give 10% and love the other 90. The message in the New Testament when it comes to giving is that you give 100%. Because Jesus wants it all. If I give him in actuality 10%, the rest of it is his as well. And I need to be saying every day, Lord, what do you want me to do with your possessions that you've entrusted me with? Why is it so important to give everything to Jesus when it comes to resources? Remember when Jesus said, you can't serve two masters? What was the master that he pointed out? You cannot serve God and money. Our money says in God we trust. In reality, probably should say in money we trust. Because it is the God that creeps in there all the time. And we find ourselves trusting in. Money is a master. And if you don't master your money, your money 
will master you. And Jesus says, you can't love me and love money. You have to surrender. You have to give up all your possessions. Now, this is not tough to do if you do step number two. If you do your responsibility and you pick up your cross every day, it's no big deal to give up your possessions. Can you imagine a guy with a cross on his back? He's walking to the place of execution, and he thinks to himself, oh, man, I forgot my wallet. Can you imagine that? He's on his way to execution. He's not thinking about some land deal that he's got to get done. He's not thinking about his human earthly inheritance. He's dead to self. If you have died to self, you're not going to be clinging to all your resources. It's a classic example of this a few chapters over in Luke 18 when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what do I have to do to have eternal life? Great question. Jesus kind of throws us with the answer. Because he says three things to this guy that I think points out his problems. This guy says, good teacher, and Jesus says, no one is good but God alone. What's he saying? You need to have a right view of who I am. Because you're calling me good, and there's only one who's good, and you need to move from good to God. You need to call me God, because that's who I am. You need a right view of me. Then he said to him, you know the commandments, and the, the kid said, I've done them all. What's the second thing he didn't understand? He didn't understand repentance. He didn't understand turning from his sin because he said, I don't have any sin. And so Jesus said to him, I want you to give up everything you've got, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Now, why did Jesus say that to this man? Because that was his God. That was what he was trusting in. That was the obstacle that was keeping him from really surrendering to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus said, let's get that out of the way. And then you can come to me. And the Bible sadly says, he was very sad for he was extremely rich. He couldn't let go. Jesus said the same thing in Mark chapter 9. He said, if your hand causes you to stumble... Cut it off. It's pretty graphic. You're better off to enter the kingdom with one hand than to have two hands to go into hell. If your foot is keeping you out of the kingdom of God, cut it off. You're better to limp into the kingdom than to have two feet to walk into hell. Jesus said if your eye offends you, pluck it out. It's better that you enter the kingdom with one eye than to see well as you go into hell. What's he saying? There will be things in your life that are obstacles that keep you from surrender to Jesus Christ. And when you encounter those things, you better cut them off. You better let them go. You better give them up. And Jesus says, if you don't, you cannot be my disciple. My favorite illustration that I repeat often because Jesus did is the fellow who's walking along the mountain path and on his right side there's just a sheer rock wall going up as far as he can see. 
And on the left side, there's just a drop, and he can't even see the bottom, and he's on a narrow path. And he's walking along, and he's not paying very good attention, and he slips, and he falls off the path. And he drops down. He doesn't know how far, but he finds a little bush, a little small tree growing out of the side of the rock, and he just grabs onto it. And he's hanging there, dangling over the precipice, about to fall and be destroyed. And he starts yelling for help. Help! 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 Is anybody up there? And he hears a voice saying, I'm up here. And he says, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus. And he says, can you help me? And he says, yes, I can help you. What do you want me to do? Well, first, let go of that bush. And the guy looks up again and says, is anybody else up there? That's Jesus' message. What's your bush? What are you holding on to to try to save yourself? Maybe your resources. Maybe your friendships. Maybe your goals and your dreams. Whatever you're holding on to, Jesus says, if I'm going to save you, you've got to let go of what you're trying to be saved by first. Or you can't be my disciple. And here in this passage, he tells you, you've got to have a surrendered will by letting go of your relationships. Jesus has to be number one with no competition from number two. You've got to let go of your responsibilities, what you think you ought to be doing, and you need to carry the cross every day on a one-way journey to death to self. And thirdly, you've got to let go of your resources, that which you naturally trust in. Now, obviously, a new believer is not going to understand all of this when they come to Christ. But in a new believer, there will be a desire to surrender. And if that desire is genuine as you grow in faith, that desire would become greater and greater. What I want in life, more than anything else, is to surrender to Jesus Christ, the greatest love in my life. And when you do that, it will be obvious. It will be obvious that you have let go of the things around you. You may have them, but you're holding them loosely. It's going to be obvious that Jesus Christ is the highest relationship in your life. And it's going to be obvious that you're a person who has your cross on your back as you're walking through life. We're going to take communion this morning. As we do, and as we prepare our hearts for that, I'm going to ask you to do a little personal inventory and talk to the Lord about your relationships and where He is in your relationships Talk to him about your responsibility and whether you're carrying your cross. And talk to him about your resources and whether you're clinging to those or whether you truly have surrendered those to him. And then as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we're to examine ourselves and then we're to eat the bread and the cup. 
that reminds us of the body of Jesus. When you have examined yourself and prepared your heart, then you're welcome to come and take part in this. If you're a visitor here today, you're welcome because it's not our supper, it's Jesus' supper. It's the Lord's supper. Let's pray and give thanks. Father, thank you. Thank you that you don't ask us to do something you haven't already done. Because as we reflect on this bread and this cup, reminding us of the bread or the body and the blood of Jesus, reminding us of the cross, we realize that you have made the ultimate ultimate sacrifice already. And you're just asking us to follow in your blood-stained footprints as we follow you. What an honor. What a privilege. Lord, challenge our hearts today. Change our hearts today and allow us to be more surrendered to you as we come and take the bread and cup in remembrance of who you are and what you've done for us. In your worthy name.